much for leading us. <clears throat> if you have a, a Bible uh, near you on, on a device or in a pocket, please do open that to the letter that's called 1 John uh, towards the end of the New Testament. And we're in chapter 5, which is the last chapter. So we're nearing the end of this uh, pastoral letter that John wrote to the churches. And uh, we've been really thrilled by what he shares. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. For it is that, so who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I pray, Father, that the words, the thoughts, the direction of all that we think about and share that which I speak and that which is prompted in, in my sisters and brothers here would deepen and encourage faith, provoke decisions, and help us to take the next step of faith. Amen. There is a bit of a common thread that is coming out from John. Over the weeks that we've been reading his uh, epistle, his pastoral letter. There are some themes that come back again and again, and we've been carrying this, this sense uh, of the Lord wanting to bring mending in a pastoral letter, of uh, this uh, thought that, uh, that we've been working with, that the Apostle John, who when called by Jesus, was mending nets. And there's something of that in that which he writes to the churches, to believers, in the midst of life, towards the end of the first century, of reminding them about being mended. And so in, in these five verses, I want to focus particularly on, on right belief and right love and right behavior. It's a bit like if, not that I've done this very much, I don't want you to think I've got many hobbies, uh, but I'm told that if you are wanting to make a seam really secure, you double stitch it. There's a bit of nodding from those who have uh, made things. Why? Because it strengthens it. Why? Because it's that place that may be the most vulnerable to being torn apart or comes under the most pressure. It's important that those things are reinforced or to change the image, that these things that, that John keeps on going on about, about love, of belief, and of how that works itself out, actually need to be highlighted and accentuated and underlined, perhaps most importantly, because those are the very things which perhaps become the most strained 
or are under the most pressure. It seems he's quite repetitive. Have you noticed that? He seems chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to be going at this again and again. And it's not because he's nothing else to say, but I think because these are the fundamental things, the things that need to be reinforced because they are at risk of being under strain or fraying. He wants, in this passage, to draw attention to these three overarching birthmarks, birthrights, privileges that we have as children of God, right belief, right love, and right behavior. And indeed, he's going to draw out, and hopefully I will too, the implications of these essentials for all of us who walk as children of God. Why? Because he wants us to be assured that we are the children of God. Again, something that he is majored on. Because he's aware too that there are perhaps spiritual deceivers, those whose uh, goals uh, and, uh, and um, agendas aren't actually to build that uh, of people of faith, but to divide and conquer and seek their own goals, and behind that, the work of the evil one. Verse chapter 226, to sow doubt. John wants believers to be mended, to have rock-solid assurance that they have been born again, that they belong to Jesus, and they can right now enjoy the gift of eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13. Not just about them, but you and me. Notice the order. It's uh, really important. That of belief comes first, that stirs love, and then comes how we live that out. That's always the pattern of the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus' commission on the mountain before ascension to the apostles and disciples gather, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Often stress when talking to people about baptism. It's not about getting it right and sorted and knowing what you have to to do in terms of behaving and obeying first. First comes belief because we've encountered Jesus and he fills us with his love and out of that wellspring comes living. So right, right belief. Right belief True Christianity, true faith in the living God always, always comes back to Jesus. He cannot be removed from the picture. It is an oxymoron. It's, it's, it doesn't work to say that we can be Christians but sideline Jesus. Doesn't work. We can't have a, a Christian faith that says, I, I'm very spiritual, I'm aware of, of God. Uh, but I don't really understand this, Jesus. I'm not going to speak much about him. You would, it would be impossible to take John, the apostle's letter, and excise out Jesus and say, you've got anything left worthwhile. Christianity, the faith 
of the Apostle John, that one who was the beloved of Jesus. The patriarch left when all the other apostles had died or been martyred. Is clear with this clarion message. It is all about Jesus, of who he is and what you believe about him. There is no getting around it or from it. John will begin in these verses in right belief. And he will end in verse 5 with the same thing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And verse 5, who, it is that over, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It is all about him. I don't know if, um, if this might uh, sound familiar to you. Can you think of another time that John declared something very, very similar? Sorry, not John, in the Gospels. About this faith in the Christ, that you are the Son of God. Remember in, in the Synoptic Gospels, with, um, uh, uh, particularly in Matthew, it uh, should be coming up. There we go. Matthew, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not surprising that John was there when Jesus blessed that statement, that utterance and says, you've got it. This is what I've come for people to discover that he is the Christ, the Messiah. In 1 John 5, 1, we must believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And in verse 5, we must confess him as the Son of God, the bedrock, the heart, the living testimony, the founding principle of a believer. Everyone, everyone who believes it is inclusive. No one is excluded. The gospel, this invitation to put your faith, your trust, your belief in Jesus is global in scope and oh, ever so personal. Even this morning, no one is excluded. The invitation to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the hoped for, the promised deliverer. Next Sunday, we begin the Advent Jesus of, of this series, this stage in the church life where we, we kind of recognize that there was waiting and expectancy for what? For the coming of him. That without the coming of him, we would still be long awaited and in darkness and, and that kind of expectant hope. Come, Lord, come, Lord. And yet at Christmas, he did Born in Bethlehem. Such a confession is the birthmark and the benchmark of belief and of being born again. It is controversial. 30 years ago, last week, I made that step of faith myself. I became a believer in Newcastle upon Tyne. So thankful. 
for that moment. And I remember telling uh, my parents and uh, being really excited about this massive step because I'd been so far away from and hostile to the gospel up until then. And initially they were like, you got carried away and got brainwashed by people. And I was like, no. And then over the course of months, as blunt but passionate about Jesus, I probably upset them quite a lot. And my dad and my mum would say, but we're Christians. We're British. Are you saying we're not good people? And, and I didn't find a good answer to that that was really very polite to them. But what I knew then is still true. If there's not a faith in Jesus, you might be good and you might be British, but you ain't a follower of Jesus. It's not right to label yourself as a Christian because it's about Christ. I, I came across this article yesterday uh, by Matthew Paris in the Times, a comment. Uh, it's not indicative, and there are other papers you can read. Uh, but I, the title of the common, Anglicanism was never really about God. And he, he writes a little bit wordy, and I've, I've cut out these bits. Many churchgoers are, if truth be told, a bit iffy about the actual existence of a deity, let alone a life to come. But put that aside. Anglicanism was always meant for the doctrinaire. That was the whole point. It is almost three centuries since the bishop and theologian John Butler remarked to the evangelizing John Wesley, Sir, the pretending to extraordinary revelations and gifts of the Holy Spirit is a horrid thing, a very horrid thing. And goes on, I don't believe in God, but I love the church, pay my subs to all saints in Elton, singing hymns and delight in the testaments old and new. I say my prayers every night, not because anyone is listening, but because I always have. Cathedrals fill me with wonder, graveyards with reverence. I subscribe to the friends of friendless churches. And it goes deeper. I love the, both the story and the person of Jesus, who I'm convinced was a real and wonderful man, albeit under a serious misapprehension about Paternity. I'm sorry, but no. I'm sorry, but no. I think the reason John wants to underline and reinforce this and bang on about it in his pastoral epistle to the church of every age is that this will be a place of fundamental pressure to water down Jesus, to remove him from the picture, to, to cast him to the side or even out of the equation. But we're not left with anything worthwhile then. Replete through the, unique, through the New Testament and indeed the whole of Scripture is the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son of God, the person of God. Obviously, doctrine is important, and obviously, uh, opinions and things matter, but it has to be about the person, Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the faith intended in the text evidently rests upon a person, upon Jesus. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It is not belief about a doctrine, nor opinion, nor a formula, but concerning a person, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, and they stand thus, whoever believes the Savior is the anointed, is born of God. 
Remember the interchangeable words, Christ and Messiah, different languages, Greek and Hebrew, but mean anointed. That Jesus is the anointed one, what's that mean? Well, the one chosen and raised up, fulfilling all those great offices of the Old Testament, the prophet, the anointed prophet of which he comes as the greatest. The prophet reveals the way of salvation, announces the kingdom of God, speaks Truth, the words of eternal life, is the herald and the bringer of the new covenant and is the anointed of the Most High. When we say we trust in him as the Son of God, the anointed Christ, we are saying he speaks truth. That he is the high priest once and for all, ordained to bring sacrifice to offer his one sacrifice for the sins of the whole mankind, to right every wrong once and for all, and to declare upon the cross, finished in the atonement. That in our, in our belief in him, we would rest and, and, and put our trust in him and our hope for full forgiveness of reconciliation and peace for all of our sins, that he died in our place. That's what it means to say, I believe in the Christ as well as declaring his kingship. Again, the anointed character of the Old Testament. And yet the full and final King of kings and Lord of lords who bears the exact image and reflection of God the Father who establishes an reign and rule and governance that none can surpass or better for he brings it in full completion and calls us as believers to live as citizens of his in his kingdom. Is he your king? Do you honor and worship and swear allegiance to him, Lord of all? I believe in the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is a battle on this. May we cling fast to the Savior and Lord Jesus in every circumstance, for where else can we go? There is no other Savior. It is only through Jesus that we're saved. I know you know this, but not everyone does. And maybe in our cultural milieu that we're in, there's this sense of let's not be quite as passionate about him. says that as we believe and trust, and this is again one of the things John would major on, we are born of God. Three times in 1 John, in chapter 2, 29, 5, 18 in this passage, born of God. Do you remember John has also mentioned this? It's right from the teachings of, of Jesus. Do you remember that lovely story? John chapter 3, elderly Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the one who knew the law came in the dead of night and they had this great conversation. What must I do? Be born again. How can that be? I can't be born physically again. Must be born again. For me, 30 years ago, that was a moment. I celebrate it on the 10th of November every year and give thanks. Thanks. When was it for you? For many of us, there is a moment. 
a period of time when the light switched on, when that belief became real, that encounter and our love for Jesus exploded. But at the risk of others who would say, I feel left out, it's not just then. I know of hundreds of people for whom that moment is more of a process because we grew up always within the context of faith where I was on a journey of discovery and it was a little bit difficult to pinpoint a calendar date. But I know that at this point there was a moment when I said, I will be 100% for this, for Jesus. And you could look back and say that was a clear marker on the way in that journey. And still there are journeys of deepening faith. Absolutely. But unless we're born again, we've not begun. It has to be in this belief and this trust, this acceptance of Jesus to say he is the savior. To be born of God. To be born again. He wants us to know uh, three things about that. I think it works. There we are. That we confess Jesus is the Messiah. That we love the Father in his ways. We overcome the world. And we have right love. Jesus didn't come to die on a bodily cr- uh, bloody cross to make us kinder and nicer. Did you know that? He came to dramatically and personally and radically and eternally transform us and make us new people. That's what being born again means. That's why it's so important. It doesn't happen by just try harder. It comes in that moment where we submit to Jesus and trust him. Right belief and right love about the father and his family. Sometimes this is where we skew off and John wants to reinforce the correct way. You may have the boldest faith and evangelistic fervor second to none and a generous hand to all, uh, for all good things. But you know what? They don't matter the most to him. Do you know what matters most to God? The one thing that he desires more than anything else is that we love him. Without love for God, even the good things we have don't value much. Paul in Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love... I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give away my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Right love. First love. Continuing love, agape love. This word love appears 30 times in oh so few verses from chapter 4, 7 to 5, 3. And even five times in these three first verses of chapter 5. 
that in being born again, this regeneration that he brings, this new life that is bestowed, brings us into a right relationship with God as Father, that the Father first loved us, and now we love him, and we love him for who he is and what he has done for us in and through Christ Jesus. But it doesn't end there. We not only love the Father, but we also love the family the Father is building. Look to the person behind you. You're called to love them. And your spouse next door to you. Look at them, if they're there. You're called to love them. You get the point. It's easy to love in the abstract. It's really easy to say, I love the persecuted church, and we do all over the world, and we're praying for our sisters and brothers. It's much harder in the practical and the fleshy of the next-door neighbor. It's why he puts us in a local fellowship. Because we have to work it out here, person by person, grump by grump. We love his family. The challenge of lockdown has been profound and many faceted. We've been so thankful that in this pandemic, we've had the internet. Well, maybe not so thankful at times, but it's let us be connected still. In previous eras, I'm sure we'd have coped in some way, but we wouldn't have been able to connect and see each other's faces and, and share messages online in different ways. One of the impacts of lockdown, obviously, is that it is disjointed fellowship. I'm thankful for the ways we've been able to keep in touch, old-fashioned phone calls and Zoom and FaceTime and so forth. But still the impact of lockdowns of these 18 months is there is still a challenge of dismemberment in the body of Christ. Physical distancing and public health alerts, rightly so to prevent disease spread, but have also penetrated in perhaps less perceptible ways. Social distancing, has that meant spiritual distancing? And by that I mean we've withdrawn from each other. We're still aware of of people amongst our fellowship and indeed in the West especially for whom the new normal is worshipping online. Tuning in to the to the blessing of amazingly gifted preachers, and I thank you, you come and listen to Phil and I most weeks. Because <laughs> we know you could go elsewhere and sit in your pajamas and drink coffee and replay the best sermons. But we're mem- remembered here that we are called together here as the family, as the body. An author I love to hear and love to read is is someone called Jim Wallace. He's an American thinker and pioneer and has a lot to say. And I'll read to you one of the things he writes. The greatest need in our time, and this was pre-COVID, 
but I think is even truer now. The greatest need in our time is not simply for charisma, the preaching of the gospel, not for diaconia, service on behalf of justice, not for charisma, the experience of the spiritual gifts, nor even for prophetia, the challenging of the king. The greatest need of our time is koinonia, the call simply to be the church, to love one another and to offer our lives for the sake of the world. The creation of living, breathing, loving communities of faith at the local church level is the foundation of all the other answers. The community of faith incarnates a whole new order, offers a visible and concrete alternative, and issues a basic challenge to the world as it is. The church must be called to be the church, to rebuild the kind of community that gives substance to the claims of faith. In other words, it matters that we're together. In all the complexity and the struggles and the, the weirdness of interacting. But it's in this, in the journeying of life together and of being able to, to, to support one another and work stuff through and say that we will hold together around Jesus Christ as the focus and center and circumference of who we are that demonstrates this is what being born again is about. This is what it means to say he is the king of this place. There's nowhere else in the world, really. That our love for others is the natural complement and companion to my first love for God. John's language, when I love God, I will keep his commands. And keeping his commands involves loving others. I don't know if you heard it in John's words, but he writes that with a sense of joy and delight. Loving one another is good. It's not like, oh gosh, do you not know? I'm trying to think of a name that's not represented here, but I'm sure there's someone online, so I won't name check. But when you think of the church, you think, I may not want to, I'll sit across the church today. I'm just not going to engage with that person for a while. But being born again means that we are regenerated from the inside. And actually this love, rather than trying, trying, trying harder, actually stems from the wellspring of love from the Father's spirit within us that motivates us and helps us. That our love for God that we hope deepens will also deepen for others, that we will seek ultimate good for each other, not that which is just easy and simple. I will seek, I'll not seek to make others more comfortable while neglecting their greatest need, which is eternal salvation in Jesus. We may clothe and educate and feed people, which are all great, but unless we introduce people to Jesus, what benefit is that? And finally, about right behavior. I know that's a bit hard to read. I apologize for it. But this was written, uh, it's inscribed in the Lübeck Cathedral, which was started in 1173 and completed in 1230. Um, it's not the most seeker-sensitive as we might phrase it. 
But about a thousand years ago, this inscription, ye call me master and obey me not. Ye call me light and see me not. You call me the way, ye call me the way and walk me not. Ye call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. Ye call me eternal and seek me not. Ye call me gracious and trust me not. Ye call me noble and serve me not. Ye call me mighty and honor me not. Ye call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Right behavior sounds like I'm going to give you uh, kind of like a, a hard time. But it's not burdensome. That obedience is liberating. That as we are born again, we receive a new nature. And with that new nature comes renewed passions and affections and values and what we truly now treasure. Because I now love God instead of hating him or being his enemy. As we worship him and come to love him more, we value him and what he values. His world, his people, his family. That his commands, though he does command us to love, are not a burden but a blessing, not drudgery but delight. Our desire to be to love and to obey him. The psalmists are full of it. Here's just two. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires, your heart's desires. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives in me. Just two of many in the Psalms of those people who love God and discovered it is a beautiful thing to put God first. To choose again and again his ways over the ways that are contrary. That the outward stems from that longing from our heart, that wellspring of great gratitude. Not I have to, but I want to. What's the emblem? Emblem. You will know in this passage that word is there. Did you know that? Nike? In these verses, in verse 4, we pick up the word conquer and victory. And that's the Greek word Nike or Nike. Nike. It was also the name of the, the Greek goddess of victory and speed and strength. And, uh, and Nike's Roman name was Victoria. And uh, she was often given wings in paintings. The statues are kind of like an idea of speed and victory and winning. And John takes these words, this word, Nike, and explodes its meaning about Jesus, not about some idol and false god, but sees con the, the victory that we have through Jesus Christ as faith that conquers the world. That without Jesus, the world holds us in its sway that we are powerless to its agendas. But when we are born again and believe that when our eyes are open and we are regenerate from within, 
We see that Jesus is greater, that he is above all of these things. All of these principalities and powers of all authority has been given to him. There is none other that can uh, even come second or third place. That even Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh and better than the desire of our eyes and better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. Faith in him overcomes. Faith was at the beginning that it is with us today and it is with us at the end. Distinguishing birthmark that says, I am a child of God. In our Thanksgiving service this afternoon, it's about Nike, victory, conquering of a life well lived. It's about just do it, of life in the moment and the here and now, of making that decision for Jesus Christ. Right now, if you've not yet done it, please, we urge you, encourage you. And it's also in that decision for him. Of right belief and right love and right favor that he will lead us in the struggles and the trials and the opportunities as we center Jesus. That he is the one to change our heart, to delight in the love the Father has for us and to love him fully and the family we're called to be part of. That he wants to inflame our passion and grow our love for him and the purposes he called us to. He wants to fill us with faith so that we can overcome the obstacles and temptations the world is throwing at us. This is what the Son of God wants for us. He wants you to bear your life and in your soul the birthmarks that you are a child of God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Alan and Band.